0: Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Rachel Edelman, Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible at Hebrew College in Boston, and I'm your host today. I've invited Noam Zion to speak to us about his new book, Sanctified Sex, the 2,000-year Jewish debate on marital intimacy, published by Jewish Publication Society in 2021. He is a dear friend and a recent Havruta, a study partner, and I am delighted to host him on this pod- podcast. So Noam Zion has been a senior research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem since 1978 and taught on the faculty of the Rabbinic Enrichment Center his publications include A Different Night, The Family Participation Haggadah, and a number of books on Talmudic marital dramas. Emerging out of the learning we have done together, I developed a course revolving around some of this material called Aros and Marriage in Rabbinic Tales of the Talmud. It has stretched me in so many wonderful ways to plumb the depths of these sources with my students. Today I want to invite our listeners into this conversation as we sit together in Jerusalem overlooking a view of the Judean Hills and the Dead Sea. Welcome Noam.
1: Uh, it's very nice to be here Rachel. I'm really glad you had a chance to read the whole book and I'm looking forward to dipping into parts of those books and showing how it could be an interesting read for some of your listeners.
0: Excellent. So, Noam, you are a teacher of teachers. It comes across in the clarity of your writing on the fraught topic of sexual intimacy. The book spans, as the subtitle suggests, 2,000 years of Jewish writing, Talmudic tales of the sages and halachic tomes, passages from the Zohar and marital advice manuals from Haredi and modern rabbis of all denominations. What motivated you to write a book about sanctified sex?
1: Well, my coming of age, uh, both erotically and intellectually, came in the late 1960s at Columbia University. Um, And there I was part of a whole generation of, uh, of young Jews who began a renaissance of Judaism, going back to Jewish tradition, They all rejected the suburban Jewish upbringings that they had had, and they went looking to find within Jewish tradition alternative sources that could give them values, not American values and also not ultra-Orthodox traditional Eastern European values, but to try to come up with a different dialogue and to find Jewish tradition as a source of resource. Perhaps one of the most important figures there, as you know very well, is Art Green, who was the founder of the university, where the seminary where you teach. And Art Green, who himself was a conservative rabbi and went on to become a great professor of mysticism, he was one of the founders of the Boston Havurah. I was part of the New York Havurah. It was a kind of a Jewish commune. And its goal, and it had to face a a series of important questions about how to make Judaism relevant spiritually to this new generation looking for community. And in many, many ways, they found lovely traditions that they could bring up and make them live again, of all different kinds. It produced the book, the um, Jewish catalog. Yes, the Jewish catalog in three volumes. Uh Um, And of course, one of the topics they decided to deal with was the issue of Jewish sexual ethics. And it's there that they came up yoke with nothing, with no answer whatsoever. Art Green, who was asked to write the piece, says very clearly, he said, we are neo-traditional Jews, but we're also postmodern Jews. And so we look at our tradition critically and we found many things to revive, but in the area of gender equality and gender relationships and in the area of sexuality, Jewish tradition has nothing to offer that's relevant in any kind of a way. He said, if we're going to create a new halakha, it's going to come from ignoring the traditional halakha, but going into mysticism, into Kabbalah, or at least Neo-Kabbalah, and seeing what we can find about a way to make Eros back into a sacred act.
0: Mm, Wow, wow, that's really uh, fascinating, really fascinating. Um, So uh, these same people, Nehemia Poland, uh, Poland, Art Green are the founders of Hebrew College, where I teach. And I feel that so much of this book, Sanctified Sex, really should be the textbook for my students who are studying with me at Hebrew College. It's just, it's very exciting um, what you've written. Um, so I, I want to, um, I sense throughout the book that your primary address is to the contemporary small-L liberal educated Jew, both in Israel and in North America. You define a small-L liberal rabbi as modern rabbis who are ideologically committed to modern values of freedom, democracy, and individual self-fulfillment, whose roots are or analogs such as human dignity, implicit in the creation of man and woman, in the image of God can be found in classical Jewish texts or which can be adapted and integrated within Judaism.
1: That's correct, but I'd like to make a distinction here. Very often we find in modern forms of Judaism, including modern orthodoxy, an apologetic desire to try to say that Judaism also teaches ecology, Judaism also teaches human, e- human dignity, Judaism also teaches democracy, etc., etc. And the tendency is, therefore, to see Judaism, modern liberal Judaisms, as attempt to catch up with all the great wisdom coming from the progressive development of rationality in the Western world. However, we all know that there's plenty that's wrong with the Western world. That's what postmodernism has made very clear. That the project of rationalization has, in fact, often backfired in many kinds of ways. So when I go back to Art Green and the people putting together the section on uh, the attitude toward Jewish sexuality in the Jewish uh, in the in the Jewish catalog, a key element here is, on one hand, they were super critical of traditional halakha, but they were equally critical of the American sexual revolution, which was going on in the late 60s. Now, the fact that young Jews and young people of all kinds in the Western world are involved in sexual activities before marriage and outside of marriage, that's not new. What was new about the American sexual revolution was to say that this was a matter of rejecting the values of both the Jewish bourgeoisie the bourgeois, the bourgeois American society in general, and of traditional values. And that rebellion tended to transform sex into a consumer issue. Sex is a biological need. It's an instinct. As long as you have full adult consent with your partner, why can't you have sex anytime you want to serve your own individual needs? It's a, it turns sex from something sacred, And sex from a topic to be dealt with through values, including religious values, and turns it into a private consumer decision to be made with whoever your partner might be. Mm -hmm. It's against that that Art Green and all of the generation of liberal rabbis came to critique. They said that we want to treat sexuality as something sacred. We want it to be the center of human values. We think that the mystery of sexual intimacy, not only physical but emotional, is at the very core of what it means to be a human being. And therefore, we don't want to support a hookup culture. Mm-hmm. However, the question is, where will we find models that will in some ways help us to keep an ethical and a spiritual side to what could easily turn into simply a a pleasing of your instincts anyway, according to your taste?
0: Excellent. We're going to get to the question of sanctity, what sanctity means a little bit later. I know it's the title of the book, but I want to hold off because I want to begin I know the question of sanctity doesn't come until later. I think what we have, because your book is arranged chronologically, I wanna address the first layer, um, the first section of your book, which really goes into the question of marital obligation. Um, So I want you to unpack that section um, first and the interpretation that emerges out of that in the early layers The Tana'etic and then later Talmudic um,
1: uh, interpretation. So, the first approach to sexuality, which begins in the Bible, is to ask the ethical question, not the spiritual or sanctified question, but rather the question of ethics. And here what we discover is unlike many of the stereotypes of women, typical of the Victorian age, which described women as themselves being spiritual and above the desires of sexuality. In other words, women do not care about orgasm. They care about love and relationship against that stereotype. In the Bible, it's very clear that women have sexual needs. And those sexual needs can be quantified and they can be part of a legal contract of what the husband owes the wife. One of the unusual things, both in the Bible and in the Talmud, there's much discussion of what the husband owes his wife sexually, but no discussion or almost no discussion of what the woman owes the man. In fact, in the first mention of the laws of marital obligations, they talk about a polygamous family where the husband has married a woman, and then he decides to marry a second woman, and he's perhaps paying less attention to the first woman. And so the rabbis say, you have to release the first woman. You have to allow her to leave the marital context if you don't provide three basic needs she has. And the needs are called, in Hebrew, she'erah, ksuta, ve'onata. The question is how to understand those. These are the ethical and contractual obligations to the woman. So the standard interpretation is you have to provide clothing, you have to provide food, and you have to provide a certain amount of sex, which is quantified depending on how much time the husband has. And the more time he has, it can be every single night, the more he has to provide for that sexual need of the woman. In fact, it's almost a consumer notion. It's a basic need. How do we supply that need? It's not sanctified in any kind of way or spiritualized the way Art Green would like to see it. Mm -hmm. However, uh, under rabbinic reinterpretation, specifically from Nachmanides in Spain in the 13th century, he identified all three of these obligations as having to do not only with the quantity, but the quality of a sexual relationship. He demanded three things. One is he demanded that there be physical touch in in, in intimacy. Not talking about sex or orgasm. We're talking about the physical touch. A man or a woman who refused to take off their clothes and be naked nude to nude and that feeling of touch, that's not ethical. That's exploitive. Second of all, they demanded that you have a nice-looking bedroom with beautiful linens and a nice bed. You don't have sex with your wife on the floor the way you might with a prostitute. There's a dignity to the woman and a dignity to the act of intercourse, which is essential to the quality of intercourse. And third is that you have to have regular times of loving, which is the language he uses. Taking from the Song of Songs, it's a matter of lovemaking, of dignified respect, And of course, most important, as Maimonides makes explicit, it has to be marriage as consenting. Sorry, it has to be every act of intercourse has to be the result of the husband wooing his wife, convincing her that she consents this time to make love with him, and it has to involve him helping to arouse her desires. Because if he has intercourse with her, but there's no desire on her part and therefore no satisfaction, therefore no orgasm, then he hasn't lived up to the minimum contractual obligations. That's step one. That's the basics. That's the ethical demands for quality intercourse.
0: Wow. Wow. Um, In... In your par- your chapters on the Talmudic models, you provide two different models from the tales of the sages. One is Rav and his wife, and uh, the other is Rabbi Eliezer Ben-Holkonos. Can you tell those two stories in brief?
1: Yes. Uh, because the Talmud is always interested including in the area of marriage is getting down to the details the nitty-gritty of how we should do our life in the best possible way both in terms of eating and in terms of prayer and in terms of defecating the way what we, we do within within the outhouse so too they say how do we combine our physical needs for intercourse with our with our with our spouse with a higher aspiration to spirituality But here they had two radically different views rav took the point of view that making love with your spouse should be a matter of joyful foreplay joking playful chatting a kind of an experience of wooing in which she becomes completely involved through his initiative the opposite point of view was rabbi eliezer and rabbi eliezer said no when you have intercourse It should be as quick as possible, wearing as much of your clothing as possible, uncover only what you have to physically in order to have a procreative act, to do it in the middle of the night, not to talk to your wife during the time that you're doing it. And if you do that, and you're having sex only as if a demon were coercing you to do it, that is the best form of sexuality. Those are the two opposite views they weren't held up initially as paradigms of Jewish law. There were two stories about two rabbis, both of them pretty unusual, where we discovered by accident what they were doing in their bedrooms. Rov's story came to light because one of his students hid under his bed while he was having intercourse to see how he was doing it. And the other one, Rabbi Eliezer, it's his wife who spoke about his special etiquette when people ask, why do you have so beautiful such beautiful children? The secret to eugenics is that my husband has a very unusual way of having intercourse with me. Later, the rabbis turn those into two halakhic models, and the debate begins, and that's a debate that continues for 2,000 years, as to what's the ideal relationship between a man and a woman during intercourse.
0: Yes. Okay, so let's talk about those later expansions of those two paradigms. So in the Shulchan Aruch, Yosef Karo, who is the main voice of the Sfari, Sfardi, Sfardim, um, the the Spanish halachic tradition, um, expresses one voice. And then the Ashkenazi gloss on the Shulchan Aruch, Moshe Isserles also expresses something else. So um, tell me how that gets codified into law. Those uh-huh. aggadic passages become you know, prescriptive.
1: Yes. So it's a debate in the 16th century, which actually begins even earlier with Maimonides. Mm-hmm. And in that view, Yosef Karo, who's also a great mystic, uh, holds the position that the only model which all Jews should follow is the model of Rabbi Eliezer. And he's super restrictive in terms of not uncovering yourself, of doing it as quickly as possible, of minimizing to zero the pleasure that the man gets. Yosef Karo's concern is, for the first time, about sanctity and spirituality. And the spirituality of Rabbi Eliezer is a spirituality in which the human being transcends his physicality. It's an ascetic notion of marriage. And the idea is, how do we preserve men who are really his only concern? It's the spiritual act of the man that's important. How does a man maintain this higher spirituality and at the same time live up to his contractual obligation to have procreative sex? Maimonides and afterwards um, uh, the Rama uh, in the 16th century, they take the position, no. The basic law follows the model of Rav, not Rabbi Eliezer. You have to talk to your wife. You have to joke with your wife. You have to woo her, her consent, and it should be, and that should bring the satisfaction. That's the obligation you have. But both Maimonides and Moshe Isserles, even those people who are permissive. In fact they're obligatory they obligate the husband to make sure that the quality of intercourse is one of joy and conversation emotional intimacy as well as erotic intimacy they say that's true as the law for regular people but for the people who want to have a higher level of sanctity they have to follow rabbi eliezer's model so you begin to get a two-tiered element within halacha for regular people What do we expect from them? We expect them to live up to their contractual obligations and to have a decent relationship with their spouse. But when it comes to the spiritual people, whether they're mystical or whether they're philosophic like Maimonides, we have to transcend our bodies. Mm. And so if a man can minimize the amount he's involved in the sexual act, if he can find a wife who doesn't mind if he minimalizes it, then that man can reach a higher level, not the level of law, but the follow much higher than the law and thus achieve a truly sacred personality. Notice what sacred means here. Sacred means to separate yourself from physicality. The more separate you are from physicality, the higher you are. By the way, that's also true in terms of etiquette in the, in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. For example, in the 19th century in England, the higher you go in social scale moving up to the aristocrats, and in the 19th century, the middle classes wanted to imitate the aristocrats, you wanted to avoid talking about the body at all. Hence develops that strange custom that I grew up with it when you're sitting at the table and you're having chicken for dinner and you point over and say, could you please pass me? Well, if you like white meat, you call it white meat, but you wouldn't want to call it breast and you wouldn't want to call it leg. It's dark meat and it's white meat. (laughs) so that same notion that the more aristocratic you are the more rational philosophic you are and the more mystical you are the farther away from the physical and that was the dominant view among christians muslims and jews throughout the centuries of the middle ages right up until the present where there's begun to be a radical transformation and in which asceticism asceticism from the body is no longer the dominant motif of religion.
0: Fantastic. Um, so there were two thoughts I had when you were speaking. One was the question of the tension between Ona and right, the marital obligation to uh, provide the woman with her sexual needs um, and how that gets narrowed down to procreative sex.
1: Actually, it's not narrowed down to procreative sex. They're independent. The commandment of having intercourse with your spouse a certain number of times, either per day, per week, or per month, does not depend on whether she's pregnant, whether she's menopausal, Mm -hmm. whether she's... uh, No no difference whatsoever. The sexual desires that she has, that's her need, and that's what you owe her. But from the man's point of view... His mitzvah, he has a mitzvah to live up to his contractual oh, obligations, and he has a mitzvah to God, which is to procreate. Oh, and see. therefore, there was the tendency to say you, the, mind, the, the man should always think about procreation, even though it's clear that he was having sex with his wife many, many times, in which there was no chance that there would be any procreative possibility. Okay,
0: okay. So that's that's a good
1: clarification. But there is a tension, I agree.
0: Yeah. Um, so... Now that you've clarified that point, um, I wonder, with regard to the woman's ona, was there a socialization going on of women? I mean, we certainly see this in the Victorian period, where women are socialized actually out of making that sexual claim for themselves. Because the ideal is to be aristocratic and to deny the body and not to make sexual claims, and so the ideal wife is exactly the wife that <laughs> that doesn't doesn't claim ona doesn't doesn't claim her marital right to have to intercourse. Right?
1: This is this is no. part of <laughs> part of this is a good news bad news. <laughs> okay. So. The good news is that in the 19th century, in the Victorian period, and we find that also among Orthodox Jews, for example, the famous Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, who was the founder of modern Orthodoxy and also had a big influence on ultra-Orthodoxy, the view is that women are also spiritual beings. They would even argue that women are higher from a spiritual point of view than the average man. And there's all kinds of, right? But that assumes the woman, is a, her spirituality is important. But when you go before the 19th century, the women are not the major people serving God. Women have a job to help the man achieve high spiritual levels so that they didn't have to bother. They didn't even think it was possible to try to get the women to give up on their sexual desires because that involves higher levels of Talmud Torah, higher levels of rationality, and for the most part, they knew that was unreasonable to expect from women since they'd already ex- excused and exempted and often prohibited women from studying Torah as at all. So it's true that a good wife will be interested in helping her husband achieve higher spiritual levels. She's more likely to defer to his spiritual needs than to her physical needs. But they never enter that into the law because the law is clear that she has her rights. Hmm.
0: Okay, so this is a definition of sanctity uh, in Hebrew, Kedusha, which is quite negative. It's prohibited. It's about, um, so Kedushin is understood as parallel to the notion of Prishut, right? Um, separate yourself from, from uh, as you put it, um, uh, bodily Dimensions. I actually don't think Kirushin has that connection with. It's not body versus spirit um, in the in the biblical context. It's probably much closer to you know that which is you separate yourself apart from Canaanite practices or a forbidden sexual relations. The whole uh, be holy for God is holy. It's about separation from. Um, from what would be licentious behavior, um but
1: not away from the body per se, yeah, I think you're I think you're right in in the biblical world, the body is not the source of evil, yes, but the body is an area in which we don't have real control because we have because people have have dysentery and people have menstruation and people ha- and people die. All those things are quite natural. None of them are evil, but we're commanded to keep those aspects of the body Mm -hmm. separate from our visiting the tabernacle or our visiting the temple. Mm -hmm. And so sanctity expresses itself by the way we manipulate and handle our eating processes, our defecating processes, and of course our sexual practices without demonizing them. Right. In other That's words, like nature. Mary Douglas would right. say, that cultures are based, and Claude Levi Strauss, cultures are based on what what's what's permitted in one situation and forbidden in another situation. Without necessarily demonizing them, the demonizing occurs more in the period of the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. especially when we, especially if you have a tendency towards a Neoplatonic notion that mm-hmm. says that spirituality is a transcending the physical. Or an Aristotelian philosophic one in which what makes you a human being is your rationality and it's women's lack of rationality which makes them identified with matter and with desire and that has to be transcended. Now what's unique in the Middle Ages is we begin to have in among the mystics multiple points of view towards sexuality. But one of the important ones is that the highest moment for the mystic is to help the male aspects and the female aspects of God to come together. This is not matter and spirit. These are two different aspects of the divine spirit that have to be brought together. And the imagery is sexual. And every single Shabbat, when, it, when we want to bring together the male and female aspects of the divine, one of the ways to do it is kind of a sympathetic experience, sympathetic magic, if you will, in which the man and the woman, the mystic and his wife, make love at 12 midnight, exactly the moment that the male and female of God comes together. And therefore, we our job on Shabbat is to, is to help the consummation of the divine marriage. So suddenly, sanctity becomes unification of opposites. <clears throat> Instead of keeping opposites apart, it's bringing them together in the proper way at the proper time. When they come together, then just as children can emerge from a sexual union, so blessing emerges and descends onto the world. shefa from that connection. Now, this is the point of view specifically of the scholar Moshe Idel, along with Yehuda Libis and Malila Hellner, and a whole group of Jerusalem scholars who understand Kabbalah as imagining the positive significance of both the male and the female and of their balance and their complementarity. There's other views, especially Elliot Wilson, that don't think that's what Kabbalah is about. In any case, for the most part, the Kabbalist language which celebrated the joy and the beauty and the excitement of the coming together of the masculine and feminine in God, they didn't often apply that to the human level. One of the few places where it's applied to the human level is a 13th century anonymous Kabbalist work called Igeret HaKodesh, The Holy Letter, and there they do talk about the positive value of coming together. It's that positive notion of sexual intimacy that later comes to be a major resource in the 20th century both among some haradim and certainly among many many of liberal jews especially those interested in mysticism in suddenly raising sexuality to the level of a sacred union oh, beautiful beautiful
0: so um so here i sort of see that in that that it's called Kodesh, the letter of holiness uh or right the letter of holiness or the holy letter as you call it you see this move away from the dichotomy between spirit and flesh which is very much the where we are now in the contemporary world and I, my favorite source that you brought i mean you brought so many sources but my favorite source was this teacher of um in israel 1952 died in 1952 in Israel. Rav Isaac Sher, author of a book called *Kedushat Israel*. What were some of the motivations behind his appropriation of some of these mystical ideas of um, when a man and woman come together? They're they're evoking the union of the feminine and the masculine in the in the supernal realms what were what were the principal guidelines what were the pressures that he was responding to in the 20th century
1: so i think the key here to understand is that debate between rav and rabbi eliezer between an erotic emotional intimacy and separation and making sex into the most mechanical act without pleasure and without distracting your spiritual concentration that debate which continues in the middle ages comes to a head around the year 1948 in Jerusalem among the charedi survivors of the holocaust who gather together in Jerusalem and in Bnei Brak and begin to rebuild their communities on one side were the hasidim who were mainly from Poland and Romania On the other side were those the litvaks the yeshiva the people who were dedicated to yeshiva study and here you have an enormous debate breaks out on one hand and this is what i've learned from professor benny brown at the hebrew university on one hand the head of the largest group of hasidim the gera hasidim which is now the largest group in israel of hasidim he said you know what in response to the holocaust in response to the modern world of secularization, we need to strengthen sanctity. And we need to strengthen sanctity not only among the elite leaders of the Hasidic movement, of the Rebbe, but among everybody as a Chosid. Now, a Chosid is not interested in keeping Jewish law at its minimum. They're interested in going beyond the demands of of Jewish law in order to reach higher levels of sanctity in their own lives. He said the challenge for us is to take a realm of sexuality at home, in our bedrooms, where it's permitted to have make love to your wife. And some people would say it's commanded to make love with your wife. And we have to turn that into the area of our spiritual dedication. So he demanded and demands, and his followers demand even to this day, that a man and a woman who are married should never have intimate conversations should never talk to one another using each other's first names, should never be in an elevator together, in the back of a taxi together, on an airplane together. They shouldn't walk together down the street. They should have intercourse as quickly as possible while almost fully clothed. And that gives the best chance for the man to defeat his sexual desires is specifically in the area where it's permitted And that becomes the highest form of an aspiration. And this is a period in which you begin to get stronger and stronger notion that to be a Haredi, to be an ultra-Orthodox Jew, is not to be interested in observing the law as is. That's too easy. It's going beyond the law and looking for the more strict you can be, the more you can sacrifice your everyday life for the sake of sanctity, the higher your spirituality. It's against that ideal that two other Litvaks living in in Bnei Brak, two other Lithuanian yeshiva rabbis, great ones, the Chazon Ish and Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Sher, they decided that that was the wrong way to go. Therefore, they came up for the first time with a new ideal, new within the halacha, that marriage, the ideal marriage, is one of erotic and of emotional intimacy, that it's a commandment to talk to your spouse, that really seems rather humorous for us, but in the rabbinic world, especially the ultra-orthodox rabbinic world, it's forbidden it's forbidden to talk to your wife too much, because it'll only lead to you talking about things that don't matter, since she doesn't study Torah and Talmud the way you do, or even worse, to sexual desires which should be minimized and not and not aroused. And he said, no. The mitzvah in the Torah is to make your wife happy. What will really make your wife happy? He says, well, maybe you don't know because men are from following Avant letter. That is uh, must be uh, 30 years or 20 years before they wrote and before John Gray wrote the book about men are from uh, Mars and women are from Venus. He said men and women have radically different natures. They're looking for different things in their relationship. What a woman wants to know is she wants relationship She wants to know that her husband loves her, and therefore the husband, at least for the first year of marriage, has to talk to his wife, tell her where he goes, enter into small talk, allow her to feel that she's being loved and cared for by him. And Yitzhak Sher wrote a much longer letter for his yeshiva students, his married yeshiva students, in which he expanded on that. And I'll Tell you more about it if you're interested. Yeah. Uh
0: yeah. Um yeah, so he wrote also an Igirata Kodesh. Um yes. also uh, a holy letter or letter of holiness. And um he introduced a beautiful bracha. Yes. And I, I really want to hear it in Hebrew, but mm-hmm. this is what you wrote. This is you quoted it uh, in English. Um may it be your will that the spirit of heroism emanate upon me to give my limbs and my body the courage and strength to perform the mitzvah of my onah, that is sexual obligation to the woman each time so that my de- desire shall be accessible without fail or weakness from now and forever Beautiful. now I have been looking for the what do you, What bracha do you say before sex what <laughs> blessing do you say before sex for a very very long time so this is it, but It's definitely phrased in terms of the male perspective. Um, And as you say very clearly, do not mistake this mystical understanding of evoking the union between the male and female in the heavens down on earth as a proto-feminist. This is not a proto-feminist text. It's still very androcentric. Um, and I, and I wonder, you know, I'm reading all these texts and I'm thinking about my own sexuality and, and women I know. And I'm wondering what, what women's, what would the woman's version of the bracha before sex? What, what, what would their blessing be before sex? (laughs) So you don't have to answer that question, but maybe you would want to ask Marcel, your wife, (laughs) what she would say. Uh Uh, I think that's that's the, That's the, Those are the voices I want to hear um, coming to the fore See, today. I yeah. think one
1: of the key things that Rob Isaac Sher does is he writes this long letter, which is about the sanctity of Israel, and he writes it for men and women. Mm. And he says that the man and the woman should read it every month to prepare themselves for the moment after they've been separated during the menstruation period, after the woman goes to the mikveh, to the ritual bath. And when they come back together, they should read that letter and it should prepare them. And he's the first source I found, a rabbinic source, writing to yeshiva students in the Haredi world who says that the women have to be fully involved. Now, what's new here are three things. Number one, he says, he says, I admit in the ultra-Orthodox world, they don't know enough about the virtue of love, and they don't know that desire is something good. They think desire is something dirty, but in fact, the sanctity of Israel is so powerful that when a, a, a Jew makes love, he turns desire into something sacred. And this act of having intercourse with your wife is as sacred as a prayer, is as sacred as the sacrifice uh, uh, in the temple Uh in every possible way. Now, he not only says this is important, he says it's important for women as well. And he says women have to imagine themselves in the Garden of Eden. In other words, he has guided imagery techniques in which the woman will imagine the angels flying around and she will imagine the, the most beautiful images that she can. And in that moment, she will be ready for making love, just like in the Garden of Eden. In fact, his general suggestion is, and again, he's very concrete here. He says his suggestion is, during the Sheva Brachot, during the seven days of the marriage and the marriage celebration, when the husband and wife are, of course, much romantic, that's when both husband and wife should keep a little notebook, and write down all the beautiful things they say to one another. Not only talking about beautiful personality, but also describing their physical attraction and the physical beauty of their partners. He uses the word agavim, which actually in Hebrew is a term that's often used for venereal disease. No, oh, no. Right, and he says he you know, he really means the sexual is becomes the erotic. And he chooses to suggest that husband and wife use the language of the Song of Songs, the love uh, that Solomon describes, not as a metaphor for the relationship between God and Israel in a spiritual way, but the physical image of these lovers. And every month we should go back to being the first-time bride and the first-time bridegroom and relive that experience in the fullest possible way.
0: Yeah, beautiful. I really have to get a copy of that. (laughs) Okay, so I want to turn to North America. So that was going on in, that's been going on in Israel, um, and some of, you described some of the pressures that that at least the ultra-Orthodox were up against. It's interesting that Esther Perel, who's one of my favorite contemporary marriage counselors, and sex therapists um, emerged out of that world, right? She yes. was born in Antwerp, right? Um, and her parents were, were Holocaust survivors, and she lived in that sort of move between the secular and ultra orthodox world in Antwerp and then brought sort of that joie de vivre. She talks about that life force, but she brings it to America, yes. to New York. I want, us to, I want to take us to America now, and I want to look at some of the pressures that have played themselves out in the American rabbinic world, um, the liberal American uh, world. And here I'm thinking about liberal with a capital L, that is to... Those rabbis that are part of the non-orthodox establishment, conservative reform, reconstructionist, umlah,
1: and the Jewish renewal and the
0: Jewish renewal movement, and the non-denominational, which is what where I teach. Um, so tell me a little bit what are the pressures that they're facing? We talked about it that at the beginning. I want to revisit those pressures. Um, What, yeah, what what is sacred about sex in that world and how do they reclaim the nation that's the notion that sex can be sacred?
1: Very good. So if I take you back to the beginning of the talk, when I described the dilemma reflected in the, uh, the Jewish catalog, the question was, we can't follow traditional notions of sanctity because they're so they're. First of all, they're anti-feminist. And second of all, they tend to be spiritual and anti-body. On the other hand, we don't want to follow into a hookup culture in which sexuality and sexual relationships are reduced to instinctual gratifications. And that's one of the reasons that reform and conservative rabbis, in fact, all these rabbis decided to emphasize sanctity. Sexualities, in fact, can be liberated, but not liberated from the sacred, liberated from false notions of guilt, false notions of shame. We have to transform the bodily into the sacred and combine it with an important ethical commitment between men and women. And here's where the big debate became. What should our position as rabbis be towards living together or premarital sex in general or Sex also outside of the marriage context, for example, after a, uh, after a, after a divorce or after uh, a widow, widowship, when couples elder, older couples get together, but they decide not to get married, even though they're living together. What should our attitude be? So, so the leaders of the rabbinic associations, conservative and reform, who wrote the official halachic stance of their rabbinic movements, this is not necessarily the majority of rabbis, but it's the most knowledgeable halakhically and the ones that have the authority in the movement, they came out very strongly against premarital sex. And their position was that it's only that sex only becomes truly sacred when we achieve an I thou relationship in the Buberian sense. And the only way that people can really open up to one another and trust one another so it's fully an ethical and interpersonal relationship is if they can be secure with one another. But if they think it's a one-night stand or we'll live together for a while and then we'll separate, they can never feel security because they never have complete commitment. Therefore, all of these rabbis reinforce the importance of kiddushin, Meaning that technical act of putting the ring on the finger of the of of the woman and saying you are hereby sanctified to me you're not allowed to have any adulterous relationships with other people and all the reform and conservative rabbis demanded that that be an equal demand that the man also not engage in adulterous or um, relationships and it, they would they considered it adultery even though in traditional halakha it's only the woman whose violation of marital fidelity, which is called adultery. And they say, therefore, we have to hold a high standard. It's okay. It's not immoral for people to have sex together if it's consensual, but it only becomes sacred when there's a full commitment, which allows the flourishing of the I-thou relationship. Mm. So
0: that's Borowitz, right?
1: This is Borowitz, it's Elliot Dorf, it's uh, Mark Vashovsky, Kalmanovsky, it's Jeremy Kalmanovsky as well. On the other side, however, specifically in the Jewish renewal and in the Reconstructionist movement, they took a looser attitude. They said you can have sanctity when people live together, you can't have it when it's simply a one-night stand. But you could have it when they make a commitment to love each other. A, a commitment ceremony could be. But even without that, if they really show that they're going to take care of one another, if somebody gets sick, the other one will take. They won't dump them as soon as there's a problem. So they say it, it depends on the quality of the relationship. And that debate continues today. It hasn't, it hasn't overcome, even though we know that the congregants of Reform and Conservative congregations including the adult congregants, for the most part, are much looser in terms of their permission for sexual. So there's two interesting cases they dealt with. One of them is the question of the Pelegish, whether you're allowed to have a relationship which is not fully a marital relationship. And one of the cases they dealt with is the problem of Alzheimer's.
0: Okay, so you have to define Pelegish for those
1: who don't Yes, know. a Pelegish uh, in the Bible means can mean several different things. It can mean a concubine, but better, it's translated as a half-wife. It's not a full marriage, It's but it's a half-wife marriage, and it doesn't require the level of sanctity of Kiddushin, uh, and it doesn't re- require the notion of a ketubah as well. So it's more informal.
0: Can, can I, I just want to... in, in um interrupt so we have a, yet a third different definition of kedushin which is a little bit right of holiness or sanctity um which we did not introduce at the beginning and that is to set apart and make exclusive to one's
1: own yes
0: that's yes. what the original rabbinic definition for
1: uh, yes
0: marriage is right Married which really doesn't
1: Kiddushin. have to do with sanctity or spirituality It has to do with the fact that we're that adultery is forbidden, and at the moment of the sanctification, it's not the woman becomes sacred; she becomes like all anything that's sacred is set apart. So on Shabbat, if Shabbat is sacred, you can't use that time for work. Not because work is bad in any way, but because Shabbat has been set aside for that purpose; it's dedicated. So the woman is also dedicated. Now notice the woman is dedicated but not the man, which always meant that men, if they wanted to, could have polygamy. They could marry multiple wives, and that was not considered adultery, which is why David Teutsch from the Reconstructionist movement says there should be nothing in Judaism against polyamory. We already have polyamory, but it's one-sided. Only the man can have multiple partners. What he says is, if the partners agree, why couldn't we agree that both the men and the woman could have multiple partners, just as the Bible allowed for the man to have multiple partners?
0: So he completely undeconstructs the whole notion of Kirushin, right? Kirushin is then not about the yes. making the person exclusive to yes. me, myself. But rather, kiddushin is maybe, I don't know how he would define kiddushin, a marriage There, is—is yes. is there, it, it, what's Jewish then about marriage?
1: Well, it's, it's a contractual relationship, and what it, they both have to agree, and if one doesn't live up to it, if it's not consensual, if behind the, the woman or the man's back you're having relationships, were not approved, then that's a violation of the sanctity of contract. Okay. But not the sanctity of the woman being for an exclusively only for her husband, right? Right, right. right. So okay. that's one issue. Um, so that, and, yeah. and maybe we should bring in now the women, some of the women's voices.
0: Yeah. So, uh, not only the women's voices, but I want to bring, I'll also crack it open to the LGBTQ community, where we're not talking about heteronormative sex. We're talking about a whole range of expression of sexual relationship um, that's not confined to the binary. Right. So I want to open it up to two scholars who you cite, um, Rachel Adler and the theologian Judith Plaskow. Judith Plaskow. What are... What gaps do they fill in and how do they come to redefine marital relations or or non-marital relations sexual relations between two people who want to engage in intimate
1: relationship but uh, rachel i first have to separate this from the question of lgbtq yeah okay because this book doesn't in any way deal with that question um, whatsoever. It's about the quality of intimate relationships, emotional and sexual, between whoever the partners are. And in fact, both, uh, both Eliot Dorff and Mark Machofsky, the head of the Reform and of the Conservative Law Committees, well, both of them approve of in, uh, marriages which are gay marriages. For them, the, you can have sanctity either way. The sanctity doesn't depend on who the partners are. It depends on the level and the quality and the exclusivity of the commitment. <clears throat> Rachel Adler takes the position that we shouldn't be emphasizing kidushin, not because she doesn't believe that marriage is related to sanctity, but she believes that the notion of saying this woman will be exclusive for sexual relations only with her husband is a form of ownership. So while the conservative and reform rabbis say that Kiddushin, the giving of the ring, is a form of raising the level of the relationship to mutual I-Thou commitment, she says the language of Kiddushin has always been about ownership. Now, I don't agree with uh, with Rachel Adler's analysis from a historical point of view, but I'm not interested in the historical question. I'm interested in her desire to transform the marriage from a hierarchical or a one-sided relationship of the man sanctifying the woman for his sexual relations into a mutual relationship. And to do that, uh, Rachel Elder does a beautiful thing. She goes back to some of the earliest actual documents of ketubahs that we have and marriage documents, which are found a thousand from a thousand years ago in the Egyptian Geniza. And there, one of the typical terms used for husband and wife is shutaf, is partner. And since in general the rabbis understand the marriage contract is part of a whole series of other contracts, she said, why don't we reconceive marriage as being a business partnership? On one hand, it's a pure business contract. On the other hand, it's covenantal because our identities and not just our properties are committed. And therefore, she suggests a special special ceremony called brit ahuvim, which means a covenant of lovers inspired by the language of the Song of Songs understood literally, inspired also by the rabbinic seven nuptial blessings, the Sheva Brachot, which talks about Re'im Ahuvim Began Eden, that made this man and woman be like loving friends in the Garden of Eden. And she suggests instead of the giving of rings, even the mutual giving of rings which are both signs of exclusivity. Instead, we should emphasize union. And how do you do that? Take a bag, put something in the bag, and you share what's in the bag together, like a joint company in which we have joint property. But the joint property is just symbolic of the way in which we are becoming a total partnership. It also means that if this partnership falls apart... And it's not a matter, it does not require the same kind of mechanisms for breaking apart a sacred relationship and therefore partnership is her model.
0: Mm-hmm. She also brings in this beautiful quote from Hosea. Now Hosea is, I'm a biblicist, so I know, I know this takes, Hosea in its, in its context is very misogynist, right? It's, uh, um, but it ends on a note of um, bilateral covenantal marriage as a metaphor for the relationship <coughs> between God and Israel. Yes. And I just want to quote from this, because I think it's really beautiful. Yeah. I will betroth you, which is erosin, right? I will betroth you or espouse you to me forever. I will betroth you in justice and law In goodness and love, I will betroth you in faithfulness, and then you will know God. That is, you, Israel, will know God, or you, the woman, Israel, will know the man, right? And that's a total inversion of the standard relationship, the way that uh, a male-female relationship is described, whereas the man knows the woman biblically so she's taking that um sort of uh androcentric patriarchal model and then inverting it as hosea does in chapter two and i think it's really really beautiful i want to i want to bring in a quote from audrey lord and i want to i want to take Take this very seriously. What what At, Rachel Adler is suggesting, and then maybe we'll learn. Move to Judith Plaskow, Audrey Lord, title of her famous book: "The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House." And I wonder if that's true, right? I wonder if. What the Jewish project really is about is taking the master's tools and renewing them or transforming them and saying, actually, sanctity, kedushah, is something other than what it meant in the biblical context. It's something different from what the rabbis meant by kedushin, which might have been proprietorial. Um... That that what you're asking of the Jewish tradition is for the master's tools to be retooled, um, and you're challenging the halachic discourse, the 2,000-year-old conversation about sexuality and marital sanctity, and you're saying we can we can reclaim this language. As she does, as Rachel Adler does with Brit Avim, she's taking categories. Brit is is a biblical category, and she's uh, creating um, she's creating a, a meta halachic reality with this category. Um, and I think it I think it's radical, um, but I don't think it. I still still thinks. In so far as we are appropriating language for our own needs, um, we are we are creating new terms. We are creating we are um, we are changing the definitions of those terms. Um, so uh, Kuhn wrote the book um, on scientific revolutions, right? And he talks about paradigm shifts. Um, and what I was, I, I was trained in, in philosophy of science way back when, and I was very intrigued by the whole notion of incommensurability, right? Where actually, when we talk about Einstein's physics, um, matter and energy is not what matter, matter and energy was to Newton. So, Kidushin is not what. Kedushin was to Yosef uh, uh, Karo in, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch right? Kedushin is something different. Kvod is now something different than what it was in uh, right, the honor of the community is different from what it was than, um when they were creating notions of, of what uh, you know, synagogue practice so so that I'm asking, I, I want I want to push us to redefine our terms, and and and, and think about that. And,
1: yeah. So I, I think um, uh, while Rachel Adler and Judith Plaskow have complex positions, yeah, in general, yeah, on the question of using the master's tools, Judith Plaskow will say that the whole rabbinic source has no authority whatsoever because it was created by men. For men who then projected right. their needs and their images on women and therefore the first move has to be to the creation of separate women's groups sometimes for her that means it goes with lesbianism mm-hmm. as preferable to any form of heterosexual relationship mm-hmm. although she has multiple positions and i'm not a hundred percent sure she would hold to that but in general we need to start over and then whatever women decide they want and whatever they want to reclaim from tradition but they have to be the ones making the decisions and the assumption is that women difference feminism will have radically different understandings of what's valuable and good and rachel rachel adler Who's also could be very critical of halakha, talking about the whole notion of kiddushin as a patriarchal form of ownership and control. Yeah. And yet, as you hinted, she's the one who's constantly reconstructing Jewish tradition by going back to earlier elements in Jewish tradition. Yeah. So in this sense, this is a model that you can find, for example, among in Hans Gadamer's notions of hermeneutics or in Alistair MacIntyre's notions that traditions are never homogeneous. You can't say this is a patriarchal society and everything in it is consistently part of patriarchy. In fact, any tradition has its own competing values and competing traditions. So the question is, how do you renegotiate the various traditions both the ideas and the laws, and then reconstruct them into a new paradigm. I think that's exactly what Rachel Adler does. I think that that's what this book is about. And the key approach of the book is to say that you don't just look at law you always have to ask what's the nomos, what's the narrative, what's the larger metahalachic view that they have, How's, what's their different notion of sanctity, their different notions of marriage, their different understandings of sexuality. And then each group, according to that larger view, will be reinterpreting specific laws and specific texts. And here I wanted people to see that ongoing debate Not to choose one over the other, but to see that particularly in arguing, they end up very creatively bringing each one's perspective to much greater resolution and helping us to give us options, not only for which side we want to choose, but to see our own ability to renegotiate our own tradition. Let me end in the following way. It seems to me that halacha it can really be understood as law. And therefore, the push for halakha, am I asking for God to be put into our bedrooms? Do I really want more legislation in which whatever religious view is enforcing itself on what happens in people's bedrooms? And my answer would be no. The other side of halakha, which is throughout history, is that halakha is a form of etzah. It's a form of advice. That's Maimonides' notion in the Guide to the Perplexed, that halakha is guidelines for people to reach higher spiritual letters and better, better moral characters. And that's what I look for from this book. Wisdom that can help us to shape our own marital relationships rather than trying to get laws passed either to change or to remain the same in terms of marriage.
0: It's not about what's forbidden and what's permissible. It's a path. It's a Halacha, it comes from the word lalechet to go. It's a path you walk 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 along, and therefore it's really about choice. It's something affirmative, um, and I think that's um, that's so generative. So I want to thank you, Noam, for giving us your time for speaking to our listeners on the New Brooks Network. This has been a really delightful conversation. And I want to end by asking you what you're working on now, uh, whether you have a current book project. I know that you just came back from Rome, where you were a scholar in residence at the Pontifical Institute. And did that open anything up for you? And if not, maybe talk about you know, where you're at with, with the work that you've done.
1: So having reached the age of 73, when I have a lot more of my life behind me than ahead of me. So instead of asking what's new, what's your next project, I'm actually interested in asking the question that I ask myself, how does the project I just produced just this year, the book about sanctified sex and intimacy, how does that be a completion of the lifetime project that I have been done? And so I'll say it very simply. I have always believed that family relationships are the very core relationships for building the Jewish community and for building humanity. That the basic unit of humanity is not the individual, it's the individual's relationship commitment between parent and child, between parent and their parents, and between husband and wife, and, and that that's really what we have to strengthen. I think families are threatened today in many ways for all kinds of reasons. And therefore, I first produced a Haggadah to help families to use their Judaism to strengthen the intergenerational event of the Seder. I did the same thing for Shabbat. I did the same thing with Talmudic marital dramas. And this book is designed to aim at that most critical issue. How does the nuclear family, that small unit of the man and the woman, how do they build a beautiful positive realistic relationship dealing with their needs and their desires and their aspirations over many, many years.
0: Wow. well thank you. This is quite a culmination of a lifetime's work. It's been a pleasure to have you on on board. Thank you so much Noam.